Well, I want to talk to you today about the Eighth Commandment. Now, I, I wrestled with this because I thought, Lord, this is not, uh, we're just not first church. These are good people. <laughs> this is not something that they struggle. I mean, these are not, this is not thieves. But so I, here, here, I, got, I got a test for you just to see if you believe this and if this is a great community. Well, we're all going to get up right now. We're going to go to the bathrooms. I want you to take your debit cards out and leave them on the counter and come back to your seats. I'm totally kidding uh, about that. I'm not, don't do that. Don't do that. I want to talk to you, though, about this commandment because there's actually a a great deal of relevance for us uh, in our life, uh, this eighth commandment. Can we put that up on the screen? I'd like for you, if you would, it's in bold there. Could we just read that all out loud together? Ready? Here we go. Uh, You shall not steal. Now, here's what I want to do. Uh, This uh, eighth commandment, the ninth commandment, the tenth commandment have an incredible amount of importance for how we live together as people. And so here's what I'd like to do for the next uh, three weeks, starting today, is I want to give you a few frameworks. I'll give you one this week, another one next week, and another one the last week of the series uh, to help us think about the Ten Commandments in light of the culture that we live in. And so I'm going to give you these, these frameworks because here's what our culture is attempting to do. It's what culture always tries to do and fails without God to do. Is it's trying to sort out who is a good and a righteous person. Maybe, in, at least in my lifetime, our culture has never been more obsessed with who is righteous. In other words, who is right, who is in, and who is out. I mean, this is, uh, this is a, a powerful question. And our culture's not getting it right. And we're not going to get it right without God. And so I want you to hear a framework that's going to give you a way to think about the Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments, what they are for us and for humanity, are a path to the righteousness of God. Yeah? You could say amen, but you don't have to. It's, it's okay. So I want to give you two frameworks, and then we're going to talk about uh, this, this commandment, the Eighth Commandment here, that will help, I think, help you hear the Ten Commandments and even the whole Bible in a, in, a, in a deeper, a deeper way. Uh, the, first, the first framework I want to give you is just, I want you to think with me for a second about the kind of person that God wants you and I to become. And then I want to give you a framework, an ancient framework, that'll give you some steps that can help you get there. Are you game for that? So let's, let's think about this for a second. What kind of person does God want you to become? Have you ever ha- asked that question about yourself? Like, what is it that God's trying to build in my life. Now, I'll give give you the Bible's answer. The Bible's answer is that you and I would become holy and we'd live among a holy people. You can't read the Bible, if you've read the whole Bible, and not pick up that this is a command. Not only is God holy, uh, but God's expectation for us as human beings is that we would be holy. In fact, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, in his letter, he's reaching all the way back to the Old Testament and saying it's still valid for us today. He says, listen, you and I are to be holy as God is holy. The Apostle Paul, he picks up on this in in his letter to the Corinthians, and he says, hey, listen, come out from among the world that you live in and be separate. In other words, be different. God wants you to be different. I don't know uh, the world that you live in. I don't know if you're a student or an employee or on on a team. But this is a message from, from God to you. Don't be, be different than the other people around you. I'm not saying be weird, but be different. I, I, don't be an employee like everybody else is an employee. Don't be a student like everybody else is a student. Don't be a line tech like everybody else is a line tech. Don't be an accountant like everybody else is an accountant. 
Don't be a business owner like everybody else is a business owner. Be different. Be holy. This is the kind of person that God wants you to become. Now, you, you need to understand this is an invitation from the heart of God, and it's an invitation to you to share in the character and the nature of God. Now, I love the message of holiness because it's a message of possibility and it's a message about reality. The, the, the reality of the message of holiness is that you and I, the, the core struggle of our life is that you and I wrestle with sin. You, you know Herman Melville who wrote famously Moby Dick? Do you know that, that author? Um, here's what he said. I, I love this quote. He said, he said, heaven, help us all. Presbyterians and pagans alike. We are cracked in the head and sadly in need of mending. That, that's the human condition, right? This is actually our problem. The problem you and I have is not that we're poorly adjusted to the world and we just need to adjust ourselves better to life and to ourselves. The problem with us is that we are sinners, and that's the reason that we are then poorly adjusted to the world. So it's a reality message, but it's also a possibility message about the grace of God. It's the, the radical optimism that God has about your life and what God can do in your life. And here's how I like to say it, and I like to think about it. Here's what that means. That means that you are not stuck. There is, there is, there is not a pattern that you have engaged in for maybe years there is not a decision you have made that has been terrible that is the definition of you for the rest of your life. You're not stuck there. The grace of God can help you get out of that. Irenaeus, who was one of the early church fathers, he lived about um, um, 70 years after Jesus, so his grandpa would have been able to say, well, I've listened to Jesus. Irenaeus, it's one of my favorite quotes from all of church history. He said, the glory of God is a man or a woman fully alive. That, that's the possibility of holiness, is that you could live a life that's fully alive. That's your destiny. That's the kind of person that God wants you to become. Now, it goes without saying that that means, if that's the case, that you would be a good person, right? Now, this, like, this is actually a huge question uh, in philosophy. It's a question that gets asked in every generation. All the philosophers, they just, you know, what, what is the good and uh, who is good and how do you become good? And Jesus actually deals with this question, and he comes along and he says, listen, good is the ability to love. It's not just some philosophical category. The good is a person to be loved, first God, and then your neighbor. And that's actually what the Ten Commandments are after, is that your holiness and your goodness are expressed as love. Uh, Brady Bratz talked about it last week. I'll read it for you again. Romans chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. It'll be on the screen. All those commandments, Paul says, you know, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. You shall not covet. Whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Would you read that out loud with me at home or here in the room? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the goal. Now, I want to give you some steps to, to, uh, I want to, give you some steps to help, you, um, help you get there. This is, this is really about the journey that you need to take from where you are to where it is that God wants you to be. And it has been my experience that most of us, I've, I've done this, I'm sure you've done it too, but most of us, when life 
brings trouble or difficulty or pain or we want something, we think that the answer is something in our, you know, in our outer world. You know, I'll give you a little rhyme. Like, it's like, well, if I could have a new house or a better spouse or get rid of the mouse, <laughs> then, then my life would work. Because what's not working is the stuff outside of me, and I need to rearrange the things outside of me. And the journey is more about what's going on in here. How you see yourself. How you see other people. How you see God. And, and most of us, when, again, when we're dissatisfied with life, what we think is it's all about the outer journey. I'm not saying that's not a part of it. I'm just suggesting that it's far more inward than you and I realize. In fact, if you, if you go about rearranging your outer world without also rearranging your inner world, I promise you really won't change or grow. You can lose the weight but remain bitter. You can build a business, you can build multiple businesses and still be lonely. You can get a degree, you can, uh, you can get a master's degree, you can go get a PhD, please do, and your life can still be defined by fear. Do you see how if you change the outer things and you never go on the inner journey, then you don't really change anything. Do you see that? So uh, let me back up here. Holiness, is it an outer journey or an inner journey? Trick question. It's both. So it's, it's about your life. It's about what's going on inside of you, but it's also about what you do with your money, and it's about what you do with your body, and it's about what you do with your possessions and where you go and who you talk to and how you talk to people. All of that matters, and uh, the, the scriptures are clear. Be holy in all that you do. But So the better question about holiness is, okay, where does that journey start? Well, it starts right in here. And I promise you, if you're, you're wrestling with that word holiness and you're like, I don't know, and I've had some people use that word and they've abused that word, and I promise the reason is because you experienced it in a way that someone made holiness about just the outer stuff and didn't tell you there was an inner journey. <laughs> or they said that outer stuff is way more important than what's going on inside of you. But you've got to take the journey. You've got to start the journey right in here. So I, I look for guides. I look for people who've been following Jesus, and um, I, I hope one of the things that you begin to recognize is that we're part of 2,000 years of, of Christian history of people following Jesus and expressing that. So I, I found someone uh, from the 11th century, Bernard. Bernard of Clairvaux. Yes, the Saint Bernard is named after Bernard, so let's get that out of the way, right? You're like, I got a so this is not someone modern. This is not someone dealing with our world. They're from a completely different, they're from a thousand years ago. And, and Bernard of Clairvaux, he said, listen, listen he's, he's trying to say this about the holiness journey. And he's, he's saying, listen, God is the goal of your life and love is the path. So what he does is he gives these four moves. I've come back to these again and again. And I just want to give them to you as, as ways that God uh, takes us on a journey so that the end goal is God and that love pervades us. And this is what he says. He says, that we all start here. He says, we start off and we love ourselves for ourselves' sake, right? It's just about me. That's my world. This is my journey. And he says, then, when you begin to be aware that there is a God who loves you and made you, you, 
you may indeed go to God because your life is in trouble and you're, you're struggling and you need someone to save you and to rescue you. And, and, but then you, and you begin to love God, but you really are loving God still for yourself's sake. So, but then there's this move where you begin to go, okay, wait a second, that's, that's not the end goal here. I, I, I want to love God. In fact, you begin to realize it's more than that and that you begin to love God for God's sake, and then he even says, and maybe, maybe not many of us even get to this point where we begin to love ourselves for God's sake. Now, remember, I'm not, this is not someone who wrote something on the bestseller. This is someone from a thousand years ago who followed Jesus. So why, why, am I, why am I giving that framework? Well, when you come to the command, things like the Ten Commandments, you're, you're coming with a filter. And depending on where you are in that journey determines how you hear what God's saying to you. So if, you, if you're in the place where you're like, you love yourself for yourself's sake and you hear a command that says, do not steal, you're like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. Or if you're in the place where you, you I love God, but for myself's sake, you, you might keep the commandment, but it would really be out of fear and out of obligation but then if you get to the place where you realize, oh, I'm meant to love God for God's sake, then, then you do it for a different reason, and it's out of loving obedience. And then if you could get even further than that, you could see what Paul's saying in his letter that I just read to you, where he says, listen, the goal of all of this is that you would love your neighbor. That's the point. Now, I, I hope you understand that God is interested in your motives. I think for many people, God's very petty, and they, they think that God gives, uh, this is how you see God. I just want to expand your understanding of God, because you have a too small of a God. That God just gives us a rule, and, and he uses it to keep us in line. And if that's how you think about God, I want to set you free and tell you that's petty, and your God is too small. Because what kind of God would be satisfied if you kept the rules, but you just did it for selfish reasons? As a parent, don't you want your kid to do the right thing for the right reason. I mean, you know when they're little, you just make them do it. And then when they get a little older, you want them to have the internal motivation to do it for the right reason, right? So you need that filter. So you're being called to be a kind of person, a holy person, and there's a path for you to get there. So let's look at this word, uh, do not steal. It's the Hebrew word, uh, ganab. Can you say that out loud with me? Ganab. That's the Hebrew word ganab. And what it basically means is that you, you take without the other person knowing or realize. It's, it, it has this image of something that's swept away by the wind unexpectedly. If you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, in the first chapter of Job, Job is sitting there and he loses everything in, in just several series of events. And one of them is, is the, the man rushes in. He says, this wind came and just knocked everything down and swept it all away. That's kind of the image of ganab. It's the, a deception that takes. And you likely have had something stolen from you. I had a, in high school, I had a class ring. You know, like you do, you get a class ring. I don't even know if that's still a deal, but I, I got a class ring because you want to feel cool. You, you want to feel important. And you saw everybody else wearing the class ring, so I got the class ring. And I came home one day, and I, I heard a noise. And um, uh, sure enough, I went in, and, and the house had been kind of ransacked and the door had been broken in, and I looked, and we examined things, and the only thing they took, I'm still in counseling for it today, is my high school class ring. Still, ganab, they swept it away when I didn't know. 
Now, you might, have, you might have stolen. I remember very vividly, uh, my family was living in Africa when I was a little, little kid. We lived in Dundee, South Africa. And um, in fact, one of our trips that's coming up is to Africa. You can hear about that next, next week. But um, we were living in Dundee, South Africa. And uh, we went to, uh, it must have been the corner store. This is one of those kind of vague memories as a kid. And we went to the corner store and, uh, and they had, you know, the candy racks. And there was a piece of candy on the floor. And my sister said to me, um, she leaned over and she said to me, hey, um, if it's on the floor, that means you can take it. <laughs> I, I still remember, I probably was three or four years, I probably, probably was around four years old. I, I still remember thinking, I don't think that's right. <laughs> uh, but I did. I, I took it. I put it in my pocket, you know. And I don't know if you've ever stolen anything, but when you've stolen something, it burns on you that you have this thing. So the whole ride home, I am just like, I'm like, I'm, I'm sure my mom knew because, you know, I'm, uh, you don't hide things as a kid when you think you're hiding them. You know, and I'm just like rubbing my pocket. And as I get out and I run around the backside of the house and I shove everything, every piece of that candy into my mouth at once to make sure I devour it all in one moment. You know, and I remember my mom coming around the corner. I'm like, So you may have had something stolen from you. Maybe you've stolen. You've ganopped, or you've been ganopped. Now, there's, a, there's this principle in, uh, in, in interpreting the scriptures. It's a Jewish principle. It's called the, the principle of first mention. And the principle of first mention works like this. When you read something and you want to understand it, go back to the very first place that that concept or word is mentioned in the narrative of the scriptures and use that as an interpretive lens to understand it. So where would we find the first mention of ganab, steel? It's actually in the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 30. Uh, if you don't know the story, Jacob, is the, that's an English translation of the Hebrew word Yaakov, which means uh, a trickster. So when you read his name in the scriptures, you, you need to read uh, trickster. And when you read the God of Jacob, you need to read the God of tricksters. And if you know his story, uh, he works for the, his uncle, in essence, Laban is his name, um, for the hand of his daughter. And he, all these things transpire. And finally, at, at the end of this story, he's frustrated and he goes to his father-in-law and says, listen, I've worked for you all these years. You've got to let me go have my own life. And, and his father-in-law says, okay, fine. And there was a whole lot of water under that bridge in that relationship, very dysfunctional. And, 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 and Jacob proposes, Trickster proposes this to his father. He says, now listen, I, I'll tell you what, here, let's just do it this way. You know, I've, I've been caring for your flocks. And, and, and you know, I, I'll tell you what, I, I'll take all of the, the flocks, uh, the, the goats that are speckled, that have of spots. I think we have a picture of, they're even called Jacob sheep to this day. I'll take all those, and then if, if, uh, if you take um, all the ones that have no spots, then that's how we'll be able to delineate between what's mine and what, between what is yours. And then here's the first mention of Ganab in the scriptures, Genesis 30, verse 3. And my honesty, is not honest, will testify for me in the future whenever you check on the wages you pay me. Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered, and there's the word, you first time in the whole scripture, will be considered ganab or stolen, swept away. 
shake hands, make the deal. But Trickster stays true to his name and does his own form of kind of, I guess you could call it genetic engineering, and works it so that he uh, breeds the animals so that most of the strong animals have spots on them and most of the weak animals have that. And then Genesis 40, 30, verse 43, records it this way. And in this way, the man, Yaakov, the trickster, grew exceedingly prosperous and came to his own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. In other words, this is what the text is wanting you to read. How did he get that way? How did he get fabulous wealth? He ganobbed it. He swept it away from someone else. He stole it. Now, you might not, you, you might, you know, there's some things you go, yeah, I, I understand, I understand the concept here, but let, let me just make sure we all, we're all on the same page about what the scriptures say can be ganobbed. Because some things are ganobbed that we don't think are ganobbed, they're no big deal. I'll give you some scriptures, we're going to put them on the screen for you. Exodus 22, 1, uh, whoever steals an ox or a sheep. So you, you can steal, you can steal property, right? My class ring and candy uh, Deuteronomy 24-7, if someone is caught kidnapping, that word there's the it's translated kidnapping, or, but it's ganab, a fellow Israelite, and treating them or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die, you must purge the evil from uh, among you. I mean, uh, how harsh is that? But in other words, you can steal a person. People still steal people today, right? I still remember as a kid when uh, people were kidnapping kids. Do, you, do your parents, you know, that you would be my parents, do you remember that? Uh, and I remember they, it kind of grew and grew and grew, and, and it used to be that you would go out into the neighborhood and your parents would say, come back when the street light comes on. But I still remember when my mom, that stopped. Whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Somebody could take you. I remember I, when I was uh, about in middle school, I, got, I would get on the bus in Omaha, Nebraska, and I would go to this summer program at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and I would go by myself as like an 11-year-old. I mean, we would never, I, I don't know a parent that would let an 11-year-old do anything like that today. I mean, just, it just doesn't happen, right? Because we're afraid someone is going to ganab our child. Uh, here's uh, Leviticus 19, uh, 13. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. And then the, the, the command goes a little deeper and says, and do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. In other words, if you're in business or you have a, some sort of dealing and you have workers or you have subs or contractors and you fail to pay them, that is stealing. I just read a thing about someone, who, a restaurant owner who had $43,000 in credit card tips that he did not give to his servers, instead used it to pay their meager $2 and something cents an hour salary. What did he do? He ganobbed from them. He stole from them. You don't give someone what's due them. They've provided a service to you, and you don't pay them. You may be, oh, that's not a big deal. No, you've, you've stolen. It's ganobbed. Uh, a little bit on the same vein, Amos 5.13, you trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. He goes, there's a power differential in the world, and you have power because you have authority and position and money, and then you treat them unfairly. You advantage yourself and you disadvantage them. That's ganabbing. That's stealing, according to the scriptures. Uh, you can steal someone's reputation using your words. Uh, in 2 Samuel 15, 6, the son of David, if you know the story, his son David, Absalom, uh, behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. So he stole, ganab, the hearts of the people of Israel. You'd have to read the whole story for the context, but what he did is he came along and he stole a position. He stole his father's reputation. It's why gossip is a sin. 
because it steals someone's reputation from them. You sweep it away behind their back when they're not there to say, no, that's not the actual facts. Oh, did you hear? You need to go, oh, wait, that's one of the commandments. Do not steal that person's reputation. They don't have a chance to defend themselves. I don't want to break the Eighth Commandment. And then there's this. You would think a, a pastor would say this in, in church, and I'm going to. Um, Malachi 3.8, will, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how we rob you? In your tithes, in your contributions. The, the idea behind money and Scripture is that uh, God entrusts us with everything, and so we are the stewards of what we have been entrusted with. Some of us have been entrusted with a lot more than some of us. And, and when we do not steward that, but we begin to think that we are the owner of that, um, then we start to think, you know what, I can do whatever I want. And so you, you begin to look at your giving as a, an owner of your money, contributing something rather than a steward of your money and managing it for God's kingdom. And some people will even go so far as if they've been around church for a long time, they'll withhold their tithe and they'll go, well, it's mine or I don't like what's happening. Um, or, you know, and what you do when you do that, what you're doing is you're saying, oh, this is a market where I get what I want and I'm not getting what I want right now, so I'm going to withhold that money. That is ganabing. That is stealing from God. You deal with that the way you need to deal with it. Jeremiah 7, uh, 7, 9, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Jesus actually quotes this when he talks about um, his house becoming a den of robbers. He says, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal, the idol of the day, and follow other gods you've not known? Then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, oh, we're safe. Have, hasn't this become a den of robbers to you? So you, can, you can steal faith. You can steal a religion by acting however you want and then thinking you're just fine in God's presence. The commandment is don't be the kind of person who for the love of yourself, for yourself's sake, or even the love of God for yourself's sake, comes along like the wind and sweeps away from a person when they can't do anything about it, sweeps away their security. Don't do that. Don't be that kind of person. So what do we do with this? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, I wrestled with this because I thought, Lord, again, I mean, wish I, this, is, this is not a, this is not a church of thieves. <laughs> What's the deal? What am I supposed to say about stealing to these good people what, that you love and love you? And I was very clear. The Lord's like, tell the people who've been stealing that it's time to stop. So I don't know where you are. I don't know if you you own a business and you're not paying somebody. I don't know if you're stealing someone's reputation. I don't know if you are kleptomania. I don't know. But it's it's time from the Lord to stop. It's time to put that away. It's time to not ganab anymore. You, you, can, you, know, you know, in our world, you can be an awfully successful person and still be an awful person. <laughs> and all, you, know what, you know how you do that? Is you be, become the kind of person who, on the backs of other people, ganobs from them, disadvantages them so you can advantage yourself. That's how you become an awful person and become awfully successful, if you want the recipe. Now, I, I, it's, it's not enough to just say that to you because it does something in the human heart when you hear someone just say, stop doing that. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't really work on the, the heart and the psyche to change our behavior in that moment. We have to have something bigger. So it's like, well, Lord, well, how, 
Who's an example of someone who had something bigger? They were ganabing, and then something happened that changed everything for them, and they stopped. And so I, I remembered the story that we, uh, I sang about as a kid in children's church that goes like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Come on, everybody. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today, right? You remember that, some of you? Oh, come down. I, I can't remember the rest of it, so someone, <laughs> someone help me with it after it's over, right? It's been a long time. I, I want you to understand something about that story, because this is important. Zacchaeus was a Jew. He knew the Ten Commandments. It's not like he didn't have that information available to him. I mean, if there were people of the Ten Commandments, it's the Jews. Zacchaeus knew the Ten Commandments, and he did it anyway. So in other words, having the information is not necessarily enough to change our behavior and become an actual righteous person, a holy person who does good and who loves people. It's not enough. You've got to have something you have something more. In fact, you could even say that the ministry of Jesus was, was a form of Jesus saying to the Jewish people, you have the commandments, but you do not have the heart of God. You need the heart of God to keep the commandments. Don't think you're something because you have the rules. No, no, I want, you want, I want to give you my heart. So what changed for Zacchaeus, someone who was incredibly, had to be skilled at justifying his ganab? What was it that changed all of that for Zacchaeus? I'll tell you what changed for Zacchaeus. When he climbed up in that sycamore tree, and as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. It was the presence of Jesus that changed everything for Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus had his, had his lived experience. I, I mean, today, if Zacchaeus were alive, we would do like a, you know, an interview with Oprah about, you know, what caused him, uh, what, what in his childhood caused him to be the kind of person who stole and what wound he was trying to, we would talk about all that. And, and maybe that's there, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure it was to some degree. But the thing that changed all that for him was the presence of Jesus the one who made the rules looked up at him in the tree and said, not, I reject you, Zacchaeus. I want nothing to do with you because you're breaking the Ganab rule. No, he didn't say that. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm, I know about you. I know what you have done. And guess what I want to do, Zacchaeus? I want to come to your house. See, in that day, when you went to someone's house, it meant, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to love you. And he goes and he comes to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus throws this big party. And if you know the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, you know that what happens at the end of that story is Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Lord, I will give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've defrauded, if I've gnobbed from anyone, I will pay them back four times over. And you know what Jesus says in response to that? He says, today salvation 
has come to this house. Now, understand, Jesus is not saying, well, Zacchaeus earned his salvation by admitting that he was stealing. No, it's the other way around. Zacchaeus finally understood that I'm the only one who could save him and rescue him. Nobody else could. He understood that I wanted to, the God who made him wanted to be with him and didn't hate him and wanted to be close to him. And that changed him. Salvation came to his house, and now he's a different person. So if you want to be a different person and you're ganabing, then the only way out of that is Jesus. You're not going to get that any other way. You can try all kinds of things. You can, you can listen to people yelling at you and screaming at you and telling you to change. It's not going to work. You need to know that God is with you and loves you and is for you. Can you come up, if you would? And then out of that, you, a gratitude grows in your heart, and you say, oh, oh, now my heart's tender toward the needs of people. I'd give half of what I have to the poor. It's not mine to begin with. So, I, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to listen to the Lord, and I'm trying to say, okay, what, what? Again, these are not people who, they're not. Well, it's, it was clear. The Lord's like, tell the people who are stealing, it's time to stop. So, listen, I'm not trying to call you out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you a word of hope. I'm trying to tell you that you've probably been doing that because you've thought by doing that, that you would find the joy that you have been looking for. What what Zacchaeus discovered is that Jesus was the joy that he was looking for. (laughs) And because Zacchaeus was the joy that he, or Jesus was the joy that he was looking for, he's like, I don't have to do it that way anymore. You you legitimately may be somebody who, it is a serious problem for you. I I actually know some folks who just wrestle with this. It's just a thing. and They don't know what to do. They just steal you may be the person who you have some literal outstanding debts. Maybe they're years old. I don't know. Where someone did work for you and you had the ability to pay them and you just, you got mad at them or you were bitter at them or it was a way to get a foot up and you've never made that right. And it is time to make that right. It may be that you are someone who on the regular, uh, when someone is not around, you, you steal their reputation and it is time to stop. The joy and the love and the feeling of being included and belonging. Because that's why you do it. Because like you, want, you want people to come around and go, oh, listen to me. Listen to what I've got to say. You want to feel, you want to feel the acceptance of people around you. You're going to only find that in Jesus. You're not going to find it anywhere else. So I just, I felt like it's really clear. You, you need to have a moment. And you may need to come down here and you need to make a serious stand by, by saying, I'm going to come down here and I'm going to, I'm, Lord, okay. I've ganabbed. I'm ready to lay that down. And I need your joy to replace that thing. I, whatever it was driving, I don't even, don't even know what was driving, but I, don't, I need your joy to, re, I need the joy of knowing you to replace that. So I lay it down today. You don't have to do it that way. You're, you're welcome to sit there in your seat, but I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? No one's looking around. Just have your, let, let everyone have their own private moment. If you say, oh, Scott, I, there has, there's, there's a way in which I have ganobbed and I need to, um, 
and he stopped. You just real, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand real high. Just real, I just want to pray for you this week. You raise your hand. Lord, uh, thank you for your word that cuts all the way to the center of who we are, that does not deal with just surface issues. doesn't tell us things to garner our conformity, but cuts so that we can be healed like a surgeon. So Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for uh, giving us the Ten Commandments as a gift, as a path to living a, a righteous and loving life. Lord, we want to be those kind of people. And if you're here and you're struggling with anything and you don't, know, you don't know the joy of Jesus, I just would invite you right in this moment. You could, you could begin a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to give you some words to say. I'm going to invite everybody in the room because I want you to know you're not alone. A lot of people in this room made a prayer like this. And I want, I want everybody in the room, would you just, just say this out loud? Dear God, I recognize I cannot do this on my own. Forgive me for my sin come into my life, lead me, guide me, change me. Only you can do that. I see that now. Thank you for your salvation. Pray this in your name.